All right, everyone. Um, we are at number 225. Do we have any questions or comments lingering from anything else before we go forward? These are very, 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 very serious ones that we're reading right now. This is sort of a cycle of advice to the monks, and it's, this is not for weaklings. This is not the romance of the spiritual path, especially the one we're about to read. Evil, I have just quoted him as saying, Master is saying, is the absence of true joy. These words seemed obscure to a certain disciple when I quoted them to her years later. I've therefore pondered the words more deeply, but I see that, in fact, they do hint, however obscurely, at a deep truth. Evil is delusion. It is the veil over the bliss nature of the soul. One who turns away from the spiritual path fails to realize that by so doing, he spurns the joy of his own being. The choice before the spiritual aspirant must be taken very seriously. It is no light matter. It does not concern relative stages of fulfillment, lesser versus greater joys, for example. It is far more drastic. It is quite simply the choice between joy and suffering. That's the paragraph that we have to come back to. The choices offered by the world are not so extreme. People in delusion face varying degrees of fulfillment and pain. They find themselves happier, for example, when they serve others than when they seize everything they can for themselves. The choice, however, between seeking God or turning away from him is absolute. Not to seek him, or worse still, to turn away from him, or God forbid, against him, is to opt blatantly for delusion. This is, whether or not one realize it, a choice for evil. For what else can the rejection of a God be if not evil? Evil obscures one's true nature of inner bliss. Master says, I have kept track of all those who have left, the Master told me. God has smashed their lives. Not a one is happy. They remember the spiritual peace and perception they developed here, and in that memory only suffer all the more. Such is the penalty for turning away from God. The only solution, he added, once one knows deeply the true meaning of life, even if afterward he abandoned his calling to it, is to turn back to it again, to resume a life of meditation and divine devotion. God won't turn those away who turn back to him. Most of those who leave, unfortunately, condemn themselves to a life sentence. It is only they, really, who mete out their punishment. It isn't God who punishes them. Happiness is what he wants for them eternally. The thing is, he won't give it to anyone who seeks an alternative. It's a very... That's what causes Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita to say to Krishna, what if I turn my back on all the fulfillments of the world and devote myself to the spiritual effort but don't realize God? And so I don't find God, and nor have I attained any of the things the world has to offer. It's just, and you know, I, I was talking last week, and I was thinking specifically of that phrase, God has smashed their lives. When I was saying how impersonally Swamiji reports what Master said, he doesn't uh, feel the need to make it easier for us to understand it. Not in this book, at least. 
He just states it exactly as Master stated it and leaves it to us to be able to rise to that. One of the um, complexes that I've observed in people over the years, and it's a very subtle one that we have to work with. Um, I remember there was a man in our community, and I came at the same time. He was younger than I, but we came at the same time. And there were certain things that Swami said of an extreme nature that were, were true representations of the spiritual path. It, it wasn't false. But this man felt obligated to bind himself by, by certain of the things that Swamiji had said. Whereas, and many years later we sorted this out, which was way beyond his capacity to do. And as a result, um, he, he, as he lost the path altogether. I mean, Swami saw me going in that direction once and warned me uh, that you become so intent on the belief that God wants you to do this and doesn't want you to do that and that you must do this and you must do that, that pretty soon you narrow your options so small and you create such a vindictive sense of God's judgment that you, sim you can't sustain it. Psychologically, you can't sustain it. You either have a breakdown or you have a rebellion. Well, this man sort of had a little bit of both, a little bit of a breakdown, a little bit of a rebellion. Many years later, when we were sort of resurrecting it, he sort of said, well, why didn't, why didn't you do that? I said, well, it never crossed my mind that those things applied to me. It just like, I know that I heard him say, say it, I could have quoted it, but I, I just heard him say it and it just went past. Because it would, it was, it just, I couldn't, I couldn't make any sense out of it, so how could I do it? I, and so, but it wasn't that I didn't believe it was true. It's just that I just, it never crossed my mind that I should even aspire to do that. Maybe that's my shortcoming as a devotee. I mean, that, that I, I aim too low. But there's this balance point. But, but the, temp, the tremendous temptation on the spiritual path is to lower the bar so that you'll feel more comfortable where you're standing. And that's the, tricky, that's the trickiest part of it, is to be at ease with your own karma um, and still have the courage to have Master say, well, you turn against the path, your life is smashed. It's not a question of degrees of fulfillment. It's between pain and suffering. And still be able to just calmly um, be who you are, because otherwise you can't stay on the path. And it's, it's what I appreciate about Swami in this book is that he doesn't, try to bridge it. He just states it and let, lets us try to understand where we're going to stand in relation to it. But it reminds me, and this is an important part, when Swami was doing the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, and he has in that section about how a Jivan Mukta can release his remaining karma through meditation and vision. It might just be a paragraph. And I commented to Swami that that was not going to apply to very many people. I mean, it was just, I was just commenting. And he answered me back quite seriously. Yes, he said, but for those to whom it does apply, it will be very helpful. But I've, I've remembered that because there are many things that you'll read, we, a lot of things that were in Patanjali, for example, and we were running through that, that there were just a lot of things in there that were true, but I myself, trying to share it with all of you in some kind of a helpful manner, I didn't have any idea what we were talking about a great deal of the time. 
what to speak, how to actually use it, but I couldn't dispute that it was true. And so I, I, I did some very, very creative interpreting during that period of time, trying to figure the true scripture applies on all levels. So I tried to find a level on which it actually still did apply. Because it does. Because it's all directional. So um, many times when, we, when one reads the lives of the saints uh, or the masters, we see them having such an extreme reaction to what everyone else would consider just ordinary things. And, and how we are able to relate to that extremity. I heard Swamiji on a recording recently reiterating what I'd said about Therese Neumann, who Master said was Mary Magdalene in a previous life. And Mary Magdalene was reputed to have been a very um, high-level courtesan. And so she'd had many experiences with men which were not of the ordinary within the bounds of society way. As Therese Neumann, she absolutely wanted to have nothing to do with men. She didn't even like a little naked statue of the baby Jesus. She would cover him up. That's what Master said. And when men came according to her house, she chased them off the property with a pitchfork. It was just like, you know, and I mean, it seemed so extreme. But she, she was actually, when I... I, I read a biography of her, a very nice biography. I can't now remember who wrote it. But she was a very joyful, very spontaneous, very natural. When I read the book, she reminded me of Swami. She was a true saint. I mean, she had those extraordinary visions. All we know about her is reading an autobiography of a yogi, although Master does talk about her, how pleasant her personality was and how childlike and sweet she was. And then she would go through these agonizing experiences with the crucifixion of Jesus, but the totality of her story is um, it's very recognizable. It sounds like Master. It sounds like Swami. Um, a person who was constantly in a high state of spiritual awareness, but simultaneously just lived very naturally and happily in the world. And she had many male friends and so on, but she never married, never wanted to. That side of life she was absolutely done with. And, and it seems extreme but to her, there was no, there was nothing attractive about it. It was just over for her. And that's very hard for us to understand because there are so many things that we may still discipline ourselves away from, but there's still a piece of us that finds it attractive. We were just having a conversation about the house that I live in at the community, which is a much newer building, more spacious. It has more conveniences in it, and it's... Uh, I, I want to be grateful for it, so I don't want to speak against it because it serves Ananda very well. My living in there serves Ananda well. It's a very comfortable place to live. I can casually think I might be able to go back to the trailer I lived in in the 70s. I like to think that I could. I don't know if I could or not. So I don't want to be flippant about it. But whatever attachments I have in the world, I have never longed for a big, a big lovely home. And it's, it's interesting because I see people come in and it's, a, it's an attachment or a desire of theirs. To me, it's just a lot of space to take care of, you know. <laughs> and it's just everybody has, has different things. And when I remember Swami saying to us, a group of us, just about the whole delusion of marriage and family and men and women, he said, once, once you see past it, he said, you really do not understand how it ever held you. 
But I don't, I, I can, I can understand that. But it's, it's more like I have a, an understanding of it. I don't have the consciousness of it. And, and I, I believe it's a truth. But believing it is a truth. And even thinking I have a calling in a certain way. You know, in my early life I had a tremendous calling to be a monastic. Just absolutely. It was just there. That didn't mean that I was free uh, as my life unfolded. It was clear that I wasn't free. But I understood it. And that's sort of where we're, we're having to work all the time. To see the truth of something even if it never occurs to us that it's actually for me to do. So then when he says, um, and, and he's talking here about turning away from the path. And I don't know exactly how to put that. I know that some of the men he refers to, like we talked about Daniel Boone, who just went to live a dissolute life after he left, apparently. And then when Swami tried to encourage him to turn back, he, he just declared that it was too late. You know, it was all over for him. It was lost. Because that is what happens. You become so discouraged. You become so guilty. You project upon God an unforgiving attitude, whatever it might be. You know, uh, Tara Mata set us all a fine example when she left Mount Washington, left the life of renunciate to marry against Master, apparently against Master's wishes. And when she realized it was a mistake, she just moved back. She just moved right back into the ashram. She had a daughter by then, just moved right back in. And when others challenged her, she said, well, I made a mistake. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life worshipping it. It's over. It's done. I'm going forward. And that's sort of how we have to think about it. We learn. We just learn from it. So when he says... Um, Evil is delusion. It's the veil over the bliss nature of the soul. And it, it's a... Again, we tend to think that we just have this little desire, that little desire. But Master makes it... I mean, the way Swami is trying to understand Master's words, that anything that, that diminishes our experience of God is evil. By contrast... Of course, you know, it, it can be explained in many other ways. But anything that, that takes us out of that is evil by definition because it's the opposite of. And this is how the saints talk. Their, their talk is so extreme. The imitation of Christ, which Master recommended we read, is very, very, very extreme. Because, yes, do you want a microphone? So I'm, I'm thinking, how do we reconcile this idea of any little thing being evil, like the extreme, with um, uh, Krishna's conversation with Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita about um, even bring your even your failures to me. You know, if you can't do this, then try this. If you can't do this, try this. Um, it I, just seems like you know we yeah. ought so often talk about the direction. Right. of the path and the small steps and standing where we are and and the truthfulness of being this is where I am which may involve a lot of turning away it does moment by moment it does that's why that's why the path of self-realization cannot be reduced to a formula or a dogma it just uh, you can leave it on uh, so I can just do it from the back that's why this path can't be reduced to a formula because uh, in this circumstance, Master spoke in a way that was, you know, chillingly unequivocal. 
In another circumstance, he would just encourage you to do a few kriyas and try to love God. Um, now that Swami has passed away, and often we're in groups, groups of us who knew Swami in varying capacities are together, and we're talking about different things, and it's extremely interesting to me how he said this one to the, this thing to this person and that one to another. I was talking to someone this morning about just some uh, possible future direction, things that I might do and so on. And I said, well, you know, Swami said certain things to me, but I, he never gave me an administrative position. He never gave me any overall responsibility for Ananda, nothing like that. He very consciously never did. I mean, I worked this community, but I never had any bigger role ever. And... Uh, it just didn't suit me. So he didn't tell me things that would have related to that. And, and the things he told me related to what, it wasn't even just personal advice, but you know, I wasn't in the meetings in which certain conversations would happen because it just wasn't my destiny to have those things happen. And so it's very interesting whenever I'm with people who had, their, who had direct input and experience with Swamiji to hear how contradictory many things he said were and it's always extremely interesting to me who was there, what was the question, who, you know, who was in the room. When I would ever take notes of Swami's uh, conversation, I would always say who was in the room. Because who was in the room could determine a lot of what would be said. He would say something when this one was in the room that he would never say when that one was in the room. And even the presence, I remember in one, in one context, he was talking about having satsangs he started having satsangs at the village that he wanted to have to be just for the resident members. And then people would try to be inclusive and they would try to bring some of the guests over. And Swami just said the presence of one you know, outsider, so to speak, he said, completely makes it impossible to have the kind of conversations we can have when none are present because he would just say something else. So the challenge of the path is to hear extreme statements and feel what applies to me and to be comfortable in that and realize that it does apply to me because in the context of being 100% this is my 100% but see the difficulty with that is the humility required to admit it and that was to an extent although I never really was blatant with it with the man I was talking about earlier it was like that was rather arrogant of you to imagine because it really was it was an arrogant assumption. And I remember someone when we were talking about, we were starting the Nayaswami order, and someone wanted to take the Nayaswami vow, which was extremely not appropriate for the individual asking. I said, why? And they said, well, because it's the highest vow. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it was more just like, you know, a Silicon Valley attitude, or if I'm going to go to college, I'll go to Harvard. Well, it's the highest vow. Well, yeah, maybe. But, whoa, it's just not for you. And so you just have to come to peace with that because it's not more advanced to not be able to accept your own reality. But see, then, there, then you, have, you always have the spectrum. Everything is dual, so within our own consciousness, there's always still going to be a spectrum. So Boone didn't want to live the celibate life of a monk. Master said, well, then go, go get married. But it mass, uh, Boone, instead of getting married, which would have at least stabilized that energy within him, he just became hedonistic and a libertine. And then he, it, he really spun out of control. And even at any point, he could have 
um, you know, moved away from the monk's life, but there were degrees in between. So even with us, and that's where, even if I'm going to keep on drinking whiskey, even as I do my kriyas, at least I'm leaning. I have, this is what my top edge looks like. And the way I've come to work with it, because it's taken me a long time to, well, it's just taken me a long time. It just takes a long time. It's like, I try not to be anything. I try neither to be, I, I just try to, to let things rest without labeling them, without analyzing them, without labeling them, without saying it's good or it's bad. What difference does it make what I call it? I mean, then how do I know? It's, it's, that, it's that story of Master that would always tell, which is when you're pulling a nail out of the wall, you really don't know how long the, the nail is. And it could be very stuck in there, but it could be at the last tiny bit. Or you could have a hundred incarnations more. And my total ignorance of everything (laughs) has has the way I've finally settled it all. But um, every day, I try to do my best. Or let me say, every day I devote myself to whatever it is that's in front of me and I try to do it with the best attitude I can bring to it and when you really stand back from it what more can anyone do? You can make all kinds of lists of things but what happens is these very deep ideas which to my mind and because I've been hearing all this for so long which just had this sort of vague reality to me I just well I, it, it's happened a lot with Swami when I first was with Swamiji when my, in my 20s I, the only word I can think of is I thought he was very very cynical and not, not cynical in any dark way you know he wasn't, he wasn't dark but he just was so cynical about everything <laughs> just everything I don't know how else to say it but what he really was is he actually just saw the planet for what it was. And I was too inexperienced. It wasn't even that I... uh, Well, I was inexperienced, and I didn't want to see it that way. I wanted it to be different. And many things he said um, made me flinch. I mean, I was plenty judgmental. It's a peculiar thing that I would see that. But I guess I, I was just naively more optimistic. But as year after year after year goes by... I just begin to understand that he was just calling a spade a spade. He wasn't. He was neither cynical nor naive. He was just realistic. You know, he was just realistic about how the span of things work out. Some of it is just chronological age. When you're 20, you just don't know what happens when you're 40. When you're 40, it all looks a little different to you. For Swamiji, where there was, I believe, a, a continuous consciousness from previous lives, you know, uh, I, I feel like youth and childhood ate me a lot. Although from another perspective, they certainly didn't. But I felt they ate me more than I hope they eat me the next time. <laughs> so youth and, and childhood blinded me to a lot of realities that uh, Swami saw all the way through. So when Master says, you know, evil is the absence of true joy everyone who turned their back on God, God smashed their lives, they've never been happy again. 
I, I, everything in me says, oh, please don't let that be true. But it's not, and this is what I realized with Swami, it wasn't really that I had an alternative reality. I just desperately wanted what he was saying to not be true. It was just as simple as that. I, I remember, I've told you before about a woman to whom Swami gave a manuscript of his book, but a book he was working on, about which she knew a lot about the subject, and he wanted her to respond. And uh, she she called me for several nights in a row because she just was finding nothing but fault with what he was saying. But even though she was a bright person, her objections didn't make a lot of sense. They were not equal to her. They weren't equal to her. And of the second or third night, I just said, what are we talking about? Nothing you're saying makes any sense. And then she blurted out, I have to make him wrong because if he's not wrong I'm going to have to listen to him in other areas of my life. I said, oh, okay. That's fine. We're talking about fear. That we can talk about. Let's stop talking about the manuscript. Let's stop trying to find fault and let's just really deal with what's really true. I didn't rebel against Swami. I was... um, I had too much faith in him. And I just couldn't. It wasn't, it wasn't, there was nothing in me that wanted to rebel against him. But that didn't mean I didn't resist certain ideas he put out. Because I just didn't want them to be true. I just wanted to hold on to my little dream of life. And um, it, it's only, you know, it's taken me to this point in my life to recognize how much of that has been a part of my spiritual life. And so these very extreme statements, my, my policy has always been, I, if I can't accept it, I don't, I don't feel guilty for not being able to accept it. And I don't feel diminished for not being able to accept it. If I can't accept it, I can't accept it. I mean, you, can't be, you have to be sincere. It doesn't serve you to pretend. But nor can I reject it. Because Master said it, Swami reported it, Swami said it, whatever it was. I can't reject it, I can't sincerely accept it, I'll try not to argue against it. I used to argue against a lot of things Swami said, and he, would, uh, he was patient to a point. Once he finally said to me, Asha, you always agree with me in the end, so just be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and that got my attention. And after that I... If I didn't understand it or want it, I tried not to argue against it. I just went silent. But I wouldn't throw it away. And I I definitely did not build a self-justification against it. You see, that's what kills you, is when you build a self-justification against it. Now, this doesn't, you know, at the time that most of you came on the scene, um, except for Chinnabar, who was here earlier, Swami's position was established, but there was a time when, uh, let's see now, what did I, I lost something in there. Let me just think what the thought was. There was a time when people were, many people were really dedicated to discrediting him. And so there was just a constant, constant effort to justify yourself against Swami. Because it was more convenient to say, I'm a disciple of Master, because he wasn't there to, to contradict your images it was as simple as that and almost no one not not 100% but almost no one who insisted on that distinction really flourished 
they, won't, they wouldn't necessarily have gone away completely, but they didn't flourish because it was just too convenient to just make it up. So Swami himself just said, well, there's those of you who insist on going straight to Master, all I can say is try it. <laughs> but, you know, later in his life he began to see, I've never seen it work. Before that he didn't say anything. He just said, fine. I mean, he, he, what's the point? He's not out to, you know, uh, he who has the most disciples when he dies wins, you know. I mean, that was not the point. He was there to help people. And if you don't want to be helped, that wasn't his problem. <laughs> so, let me go back to... Um, it is no light matter. It does not concern relative stages of fulfillment, lesser versus greater joys, for example. It is far more drastic. It is quite simply a choice between joy and suffering. That's the hardest thing to accept. Whenever I talk, what I, people have finally stopped, but whenever, partly because I've toned myself down, whenever I would talk about this world as not being fulfilling, so many people would come and protest. It just got to be tiresome. And they would tell me about all the wonderful things there were. And it, partly I myself was not in balance in what I was saying. But when he puts it just like that, you know, life without God is misery. Life with God is joy. And it's, it's sooner or later we have to know that so strongly. I'm sort of in my life, I'm at the edge of the point where I understand how drastic is the choice, but I, I'm not free enough to make that choice. You know, I'm not Therese Nuhiman who's going to chase men away with a pitchfork. I was just like, it wouldn't occur to me necessarily to do that. But I can understand more clearly now why someone would do that. And I think that's progress. Because at the, you, can't, you won't know it till you know it. And that's sort of what Swami said, when you're finally free of these things, you, you, just, you can't even understand why it caught you. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, so let me think for a second. And then he talks about um, the choices offered by the world are not so extreme. People in delusion face varying degrees of fulfillment and pain. Those who are more selfless are more fulfilled. Those who are more selfish are less fulfilled. But to turn away from God or against God, there's a, um, there were a couple of uh, death and return stories that I don't, I, somebody at East West, maybe Tandava, gave them to Swami. And there were two stories of people who'd been very bad, who were very bad people, who had death and return stories, and they're um, experiences on the other side were really awful. And, and Swamiji said he was, he was happy to read those because he thought it must be so. You know, that not everybody gets to go into these happy, blissful states because really selfish, mean people, they wouldn't. And one of them, the most interesting one, was this man who had, I believe he was a college professor, and he had taken that really super cynical, intellectual, anti-God view. And he used his position as a professor to mock anything that had to do with spirituality or religion. And he got a great deal of egoic satisfaction out of being a cynic. And he, um, he took pleasure in undermining people's faith. And he'd made a whole, you know, rather spectacular career for himself this way. And he was, this was a very, you know, anti-spiritual way of living. And then he either became ill or was in an accident. And he went to the other side, and what he experienced on the other side 
was the absolute despair of, of complete separation from any greater reality. You know, the absolute blackness of atheism. He, he just, he lived it, he went into it. And, and with horror, when he came out of that, he realized, well, first he, he saw also that it was, a, I mean, he, he, he perceived that it was a lie. <clears throat> he experienced it, and then he perceived that it was, a, it was false. That in fact there was this reality. He didn't experience, I don't remember the details, but he didn't experience the bliss, but he perceived that what he'd been, what he'd built his entire reputation on was false and evil. So he came back and dismantled everything and in the process lost his wife and his family and his position, but he had to because he saw what he was doing to people because he went there himself. And the other one was a woman who was just, who was intensely self-centered and intensely selfish and, and mean-spirited and um, just took pleasure in, in being mean to people. And she too, she just came out of her body and just went into the, the pure vibration of what she had continually expressed and, and just realized suddenly what she had created and what she was doing and had such tremendous remorse. And when she came back, she reconstructed her life in a completely different way. But if you don't have a death and return experience, you, you, you just get what you have. And that's what Master's talking about. He's, he's not talking about people like us who fundamentally are living for God, are doing our best. It's, it's not the choice between trying to be a devotee and wishing you could be a better devotee. It's just not even believing that this way of life matters or, as he says, having sort of been there but then just repudiated it. You know, I don't want to, who, I don't want to follow a guru. The meditation was just, just hypnosis. You know, I'm just going to go back and enjoy the world. All this self-discipline doesn't take, give me anything I want. Let's just go out and have a good time. And the, the, uh, the underlying despair that would come to someone when, when they've done that and just at one time been so close. I mean, that's how we rise and fall. It's not, we wish it were just a straight line, but we get sucked away. I mean, just think how, and that's why earlier on he was talking about don't get too involved with people who go back to the world. Don't be too sympathetic. Oh, well, I certainly understand, you know, why you really would want to have that career and you have a real talent for that and it's really nice. Yes, that's a good company and isn't it wonderful? Now you have this promotion and oh, what a nice vacation. I mean, you know, you have to start saying, you, you find yourself not wanting to be against people but Master says, don't be too sympathetic and just don't associate with them because you see, you can see how easily, I mean, what I just described, you all can recognize that. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a line here which is actually, which I'm going to say out loud. Swami um, had told us as, as a neophyte spiritual ministers and so on, that it's presumptuous not to take yourself into account. That's the phrase he used, meaning you can't just do what you're supposed to do. You also have to think, where am I in relation to this? And, and, and 
I can't pretend that I also don't have karma here. And that was where he said the phrase, even if a stern decision is required, if it's not good for you to be stern, he said, be charitable instead. Which is, so I've always remembered that. So it's easier for me sometimes to be, to be firm and rigid. So I have had to train myself to say, oh, how wonderful, what a great vacation. <laughs> what a nice home. Not necessarily because that's my ultimate attitude, but because it's better for me to be supportive than to be strong when nobody's asking me. I mean, so it, 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 and this is where you end up having to play all the nuances. But the instruction, as we read a few weeks ago, was pretty unequivocal. But you can see why. And this is where I'm saying you, you mustn't ever justify yourself by diminishing or softening the principles. That it, it, you have to always know exactly where you stand. Otherwise, you really get in trouble. That's what really gets you in trouble, is when you've shifted the teaching to fit your consciousness. It's not a problem to just say, I know Master said not to do this, but I am. And that's really not a problem, because it's just a fact. The problem is to say, Master didn't really mean it. <laughs> or it only, that was back then, now it doesn't apply. That's my favorite well, that, could, that was true in the, in the 40s, but it's not true now, you know. <laughs> no, actually, I think it is true now. <laughs> All right. Is there any more on any of that? Let me see if I've missed anything else here. You know, I, I put a note here. It's when God, he said God has smashed their lives. Um, it, I... I it's not that, uh, it's just, it's not that God is punishing you. It's, it's like the soul itself can't thrive. And, and it's like, it's, it's a grace to have it not work out quickly <laughs> instead of having it all sort of just come together for you in such a beautiful way. It's more like God says, are you kidding? You know, you've come this far. And, it, and the soul itself, just uh, your higher self, just can't give yourself back to those things, even though you think you could. It's like Swamiji talked once. He went when he went to Europe somewhere, to Switzerland or somewhere. He remembered some candy he'd loved as a child, and went and bought it, and it was just so impossibly sweet he could, he couldn't even swallow it. It's sort of like we remember fondly. We have a sentimental fondness for certain things, and then we go back. I was reading, this was uh, unrelated to spirituality, but it was an interesting statement. It was talking, it was talking about the recent uh, political uh, situation in America and also talking about the vote in England to come out of the um, EU. And, and the man was talking about language and he was talking about the way you describe things sets up emotional pictures. And he said the word exit because they wanted to exit from the EU. And then there was a lot of things in the... He was talking about how the um, camp, pr presidential campaigns were, were phrasing things. He said, when you exit something, it implies that you go out where you entered. So you came in a certain door and then you exit. So Britain walked into the 
European Union at a certain point and now they want to exit and people imagine that when they come out they're going to come out to the same spot they were when they went in but of course you know the whole world has shifted during that time so when they exit they're exiting into a world that, that is not the same one that they entered from and, and that's a lot of what's going on in this country right now if we just reverse all these policies then somehow we'll be where we were before these policies were put in place. But in the meantime, everything has shifted. And so the spiritual, the mind of the devotee, you fondly remember, I used to be happy doing so and so, I used to enjoy this. You even fondly remember from another incarnation. But all of this spiritual experience in between has at least given us a glimpse of another reality that doesn't allow us to enter into it with the same mindless enjoyment almost. It, it, it's such a, a stark contrast when, uh, when we've tried to, in marketing discussions, trying to figure out what the unifying thread is, the people who are part of Ananda, which has always been extremely difficult to do. Um, there's no demographic. But the single unifying factor is that somewhere along the line, every single person who becomes even interested Somehow or another, they noticed that there's, there is an inner reality and that the inner reality has great importance in your life. But there are many people on the planet who really don't know that. And they just live. They live from... I, mean, I, think, I see it sometimes when you see these politicians, some of them, but you can tell by the sound of their voices, by the look on their faces, in addition to many of the things they say. It's just this world and we're just going to keep manipulating this world and we're going to, you know, look right and act right and that's it. But once you know something else, you just can never be as committed. And that's what he's talking about. It's not like he has to punish you, it's just... There you have it. Swami used to say, he was often so confused when he would be like at the dinner table with his relatives because he kept thinking there was something going on there that he just wasn't catching. And he finally realized that there wasn't. <laughs> that they were just, uh, just exchanging information and they were not really going anywhere with it. And it, but that wasn't that they were bad people, it was just that was the way they lived. In fact, they were very good people, but that was just the way they lived. Yes. Um, I think I see a, a, a sort of a parallel in a lot of uh, kind of way that I experience a lot in this life here where um, things I would do in the past that I thought were the best thing I could possibly do, different kinds of escapes mm -hmm. and so forth, um, that I could really convince myself that uh, this was fulfilling in its way and there was certainly nothing wrong with it. So I kind of, every once in a while I have nostalgia for those things and I'll try them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just doesn't work at all. No, it doesn't. But at least it isn't, doesn't have the devastation that you're describing in some of these high-stakes things. Well, it depends on, to merely, I mean, I, I mentioned last week Swami talking about the man who showed up at his house drunk. And, you know, just a, a serious Ananda devotee just had a day. I remember another man uh, the community was so small at that time, we, and no, most people didn't have cars even. And we always knew where everyone was. You just, it, it, 
we were, whenever anything happened, everyone was there. And if they weren't there, where were they? So there was a Kriya and this man didn't come. And we all knew he was there. He just didn't show up. And so the next day Swamiji went to have me find out why he didn't come. So I asked him and he said to me, he was a very, he is, very honest person. I didn't feel like bowing down to the gurus last night. <laughs> and, and I went and I told Swami and Swami said, oh, I can understand that. That was just the end of it. You know, it was just having a moment of rebellion. And, you know, 50 years later, the person is still completely dedicated to the path. He was just, but he didn't feel like it. He was just going to see what it felt like. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm just saying that uh, something like um, I, I, to carve out chunks of my life uh, where, okay, I've done all the nominal duties of the day, and uh, now I have something called free time, which somehow is inherently special now. And that's the big mistake, because it's not. Hmm. And so what I would do in that time, and before I could get away with it and mm -hmm. do all these things, I could um, uh, do some lazy things, mm -hmm. or sit back and watch a video that isn't all that great. All it does is kind of mesmerize me or something like that. And in the past, I could get away with it and come out and say, okay, I accomplished my little escape, and now I'll go back to it. I'll get in those things now, and I can't, uh, I say, this is terrible, and what a terrible waste of time, and I just can't put it over to myself anymore. The vibration has changed. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's nice. And, uh, it's a little, I think it's a little easier to, um, just to uh, take those lessons on this plane than some of the extreme examples that you were talking about earlier, because that sounds, wow, really hard. It's, like the fellow that goes back who committed his whole life to this wrong way of living, and uh, he, uh, he gets he gets a wake-up call in a really, really big way to the extent he couldn't... It's not just that he can say, oh, I can say, I can see the truth. No, it's just devastating. His whole life falls apart and he has to change everything. But it's yeah. the same idea, the same thing is happening. Yeah. It's, Master wants us to understand most appreciatively, as he writes here, some people give themselves a life sentence. He said, it's not that God gives it to you because God would take you back at any moment. That God... It's, you give yourself a life sentence. It's very, it's, um, hmm. We make the choices, don't we? Seemingly. Yeah. That's the question of free will versus karma, which I won't touch. <laughs> Why don't we take a, it's a few minutes early, but let's take a little bit of a break right now. Do you have a question? When somebody leaves the path and they go off to maybe talk to them don't get too involved in what they have well, to say. Well, I was quoting from what Master said. I wasn't making it up on my own. Oh, okay. It was from one of the earlier entries. All right. I'm just relating it to, to me lately because I have to deal because of my brother's affairs. He's not to, talking about... He's not talking about that. No, he's he? not talking about staying away from the affairs of the world. He wasn't talking about that at all. He was talking about when people leave the path. When they leave the path, okay. Yeah, it's a wholly different story. Circumstances of life demand men. I mean, we don't live in an ashram. We're not monastics living in a monastery. I mean, some of us live in communities, some of us don't. It's wholly different. That's why one has to use one's common sense, and that's why the, the spiritual path cannot be dogmatized. Because what applies to one simply doesn't apply to another. And, you know, we just have to move a step at a time. It's very, it's not simple. Just everybody, everybody wants to reduce it. I want to reduce it to something easy. It never goes there. 
I've spent a lot of time trying to wrestling it, wrestle it into something that fits. Um. So I just uh, struggle a little bit with this with Yogananda's statement that God smashed their lives. Yes, it's a, it's a very unpleasant statement. And it, uh-huh. it's so, I mean, I'm, I just, because in the very next paragraph, he talks about they've really done this to themselves. Not a is, one is happy. They remember the spiritual peace and perception they developed here. But see, listen to it. They remember the peace and perception they developed here and in that memory only suffer all the more. Mm-hmm. Such is the penalty for turning away from God. Turning away from God, he's not talking about having a bad year. <laughs> no, but, yeah. but I guess for me it's like God doesn't smash their lives. But they smash God their has, lives. They he, turn away from God. He said and, God has smashed their lives. But I don't understand I that. I don't understand then. it either, and it's written right here. I mean, it's, it, every time I've read it, I've thought, wow. You know, but that is what he said. God has smashed their lives. And it's just that it's, I, I have no idea what to do with it. Because it's, it's an awful thing when you read it like that. But there it is, and he did say it. It's a very different sense of God. And, but then he, he explains it. They remember the spiritual peace. So what does he mean by that? You know, does he mean that, you know, they lost their jobs and they become homeless? It doesn't necessarily mean that, because a lot of times the people went on and they were perfectly successful. But inwardly, what they hoped to gain from what they were doing... They just didn't get it. So I don't know. But if Master, that's why I was saying earlier, Swami had the courage and to just, it's because he, he talks at different times about how um, Tara edited Master to be more consistent with what she thought he ought to have said. And how uh, sometimes... Swamiji found that his guru bhais and SRF were always trying to make Master more acceptable, more palatable, just take the edges down a little bit, or just make him fit more in what their idea of what they thought he should be. Even, you know, editing his words, editing his recordings. And, so, and Swami just puts it in front of you. There it is. That's what he said. He said it to the monks, for what effect, for what reason, what was he trying to create, I really don't know. I find it chilling. It's just a chilling statement, there's no way around it. But he does explain it, that it's the, it's the soul memory itself that, that keeps them from being able to have the experience they wanted. I don't, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to argue the point, right. but I think... For me, I guess where where the stuckness comes is that he later says, or Swami says, it isn't God who punishes them. Right. right? So it's contradictory. So so that's the part because if it's God smashing my life, boy, that's a moment of despair for sure. But he's, but if it's I've turned, I've I've forgotten, I've remembered, then I've turned from that light, and God is there. If I turn back, that he will always be there to pick up the pieces, so to speak, if I, if, if I turn back. But if he smashed my life, then I have an image of God that is the old image of the 
that thing in the sky, that guy in the sky that's like damning me because I'm not good enough. But at the same time, um, divine law is inexorable and you can't escape it. And you, you just, actions have consequences. And uh, the Heavenly Father, in the form of the impersonal, well, what did you expect? You know, you behave like that, this is what you get. What did you expect? How, how could I, this is not a question of not loving you or wanting the best for you. He goes on to say, of course God wants us to be happy, but you know, you drive the car into the cement wall. What did you expect? And so, okay, I'm just going to go out now, and I, you know, I, you called me, you gave me a guru, you gave me this life, you gave me all these experiences, and I know all this is true, but now I'm just going to go out, and I'm just going to go out and play a little bit, and it's just going to be fine, isn't it? No. And so, there it is. And that's also a very real part of the spiritual path. Yeah. Um, Chidambar, what? No, I'm behind her. Yes, go ahead. Um, I, I don't think of it as the distinction between God and divine law. What is divine law is an expression of God's will. And, uh, you know, sometimes love has to be tough and hard. And, and yes, it is jarring and shocking and uh, ghastly, but still, that's the way it has to be. Um, so that's how I see it. And somewhat reminds me of a statement that some very respected devotee friend quoted Yogananda as saying in the past that I've never gone try to get to an origin or anything, but he Yogananda is quoted as saying that uh, God eats people, uh, which is kind of the same thing. Swami and, said that. Okay, and it's really strong. Swami said that, and it's very uh, very strong stuff. But on the other hand, well, it's uh, it's divine law, and it can be very very painful. But it doesn't make you irredeemable. Because your destiny, in spite of all this horror, is freedom. And it's just a really serious bump along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Tittenberg, did you have a comment, or was that it? I was just thinking Stalin, 100,000 years. 100,000 lifetimes. Lifetimes. Wasn't it a lifetimes? 100,000 years, maybe it was 100,000 years. Yeah, of suffering. Yeah, that's, that's smashing a lot. It, and it is true. And um, these are all the things that uh, make the path very, very subtle. And that all of them have to be true at the same time. I, uh, I remember going to India in the beginning and being in Calcutta during the Kali Puja. And Kali is, you know, just a more and more extreme example of death and destruction and the garland of skulls and the, um, the tongue, the sort of blood-red tongue and the sword and, um, you know, it, it was a confusing image and we were going in, in Calcutta, the, all the different neighborhoods had set up, had, had statues made and had altars made and they just were going through the streets walking or driving, you, were, you would see these big collies everywhere and, uh, and I was new to all of it. I was just really trying to understand it. And in some crowd situation, we were kind of, I kept backing up and the crowd was filling and I, unbeknownst to me, I came up, I was standing like this to a Kali statue. 
And I turned around and, you know, it was great big. <laughs> and it was shocking to just be standing there like that. And I sort of asked her, asked her to explain herself to me. And I realized that she was a very, I, I, I sensed that she was a super conscious vision that some great soul had had about the way it is. And that is the way it is. You know, it, it, it's the holding the bloody skull and the sword. That's all, it all happens, this is Divine Mother, and it all happens simultaneously, just like that. And it was a very um, liberating realization that it does not all resolve neatly. It's just all these, these simultaneous things work together. Simultaneously God blesses us, and simultaneously He allows us to be crushed because that's how the grape turns into wine. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's crushed. And you, you can say all those words, but it's only when you um, actually have experiences yourself that you, you can't, that don't fall into any neat category. And then you, you, you read a phrase like that, and all of a sudden you realize what they were saying. And you just didn't know before. That's why... I, I try not to reject it. If I, I, if I don't accept it if I can't, but I try not to reject it because I, too often, later, it, it articulates my experience, but I hadn't had the experience yet, so I didn't recognize the articulation. That's what happened recently when I read Imitation of Christ, which I'd never enjoyed before. And then all of a sudden, it, it just... My experiences were being articulated, but I'd never had those experiences, so the book never made any sense to me. So I presume that this, too, <laughs> yes. If you, have, uh, if you have faith or realize the value in um, cultivating the faith that um, every single thing that comes to you comes from God, comes from Divine Mother, the Divine Mother is truly the your greatest friend couldn't possibly be a better friend than she she's totally dedicated to your freedom and your happiness and your love and every single thing that she causes to befall you is precisely for that purpose and i believe all that fervently and i my, i try to cultivate my faith in the truth of that and it grows um and i, well, I guess once we are able to um um let that grow big enough then these horrific punches in the jaw that we're talking about tonight won't affect us as much. But I guess until they do, and, and while she still thinks we need them, um, we're going to get better, uh, knocked around pretty good. So this, these chapters are not specifically about tests on the spiritual path. These are about um, proceeding or trying to find an alternative to it, to the path. I mean, just there's a nuance here. Yeah, just, I mean, just for what we're actually discussing. Master was, the, this whole little section when we were talking about it, there's been a few of them about the monks who left. I mean, this whole thing started with Swamiji being assigned by, this whole section started with Swami being assigned by Master to organize the monks and Swami's passion for organizing the mon monks because so many of them left, and then all the things that Master said about the ones who left. So, you know, we're not, we're talking about a, 
an aspect of spiritual life. Um, but it's it's all it's not that it's not interrelated. It just I'm just sort of wanting because we can do this for so long. Swamiji commented that when the SRF lessons were compiled by the nun who compiled them, who never actually did any public teaching, um, one of the thoughts was to keep people receiving the lessons for a long time so they often strung things out. And there's the story about the two frogs who fall into the bucket and you know, we're trying to get out of the bucket. And whether it's true or not, Swamiji says, you know, you have to spend four weeks in agonizing suspense to find out whether the frogs are ever going to get out of the bucket or not. <laughs> I don't think it was actually true, but that's what he was trying to say. But we're spending a lot of time going through something and we kind of can lose the thread of where we're going. So, <laughs> All right. So are we okay? So now we're on number 226. Jerry Torgerson... Torgerson said to the master, I'm sorry I'm so stubborn, master. I think that came after, remember Swami tells the story about how he was going to repair the roof at the 29 Palms and he stripped it all off and drove a bunch of nails through the roof and then it started raining and all the water poured into the house. So he'd caused a certain amount of trouble, which he regularly did apparently. Jerry Torgerson said to the master, I'm sorry I'm so stubborn, master. That's all right, the master answered him reassuringly. I attract stubborn people. <clears throat> it wasn't stubbornness he minded. What he warned against was stubbornness in rejecting wise guidance. It's a very different point. Otherwise, he actually approved of stubbornness, especially if it meant steadfastness in one's quest for God. He didn't want goody-goody disciples, yes, men, who answered with a limp smile and said, Yes, Master, I understand. I understand. Then did nothing. He preferred people who questioned who even held back until they'd really taken a teaching to heart, as long as eventually they took it to heart. Swami used to make a distinction between stubbornness and what he called pig-headedness. And it, it was more, more clear when it was illustrated in front of you than when it was described in the abstract. But I don't know, pig-headedness was not an original concept on his part, but pig-headedness is not being steadfast in your point of view. It's just being closed to all input and foolishly determined in your own way. And there's not much that you can do with someone who's pig-headed because no matter how many... Um, you know, no matter how, how you try to open their mind to a bigger reality, they just, if they just won't do it, they just won't do it. And, but stubbornness is a certain commitment to a course of action that you yourself have worked out and, and uh, the necessity to really see it and feel it for yourself. And that's why Master said, I attract stubborn people because people who are too easily pushed from the outside just simply don't have the inner fortitude to be disciples because too much of it too much about being a disciple really has to come from inside of you um, and Swamiji was always the same he said I always prefer an ar a good argument I, I mean I just would there was a period of time when I just would always say yes but I didn't have the I, I wasn't I wasn't able to follow through on my affirmations and, it, and so I would try to, as he said, look good, look like a good disciple, but I couldn't follow through on the affirmations. And he, 
he just made my life, Swami did, just made my life more and more difficult until I couldn't sustain it anymore. I just became so rattled. And that's when he said, you, didn't, you never fooled me. You know, all of your affirming that you, could, you were going along with me, I could feel your inner rebellion. And my response was, well, what a waste of time. And so I started just being more sincere from that point, even if I was less cooperative. And I mean, it wasn't, it, 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 it was a balancing act I had to struggle with my whole life with him between wanting to be supportive and understand what he was trying to do and the necessity also to think things through for myself. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it any other way. Um, and it's, it's a tricky, he doesn't mind if you, if, as long as you eventually that's why we finally said in impatience, you're going to agree with me in the end, so just stop arguing. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Number 227. At the same time, he said, some people, when you call them, mutter groggily, don't bother me, I'm sleeping. Others, if you shake them, stretch their arms a little, and even sit up, but the moment you turn your back, they fall asleep again. <laughs> You love that. You can just see it too, can't you? Even as he's describing it. The kind I like are those who, as soon as you call them, leap up fully awake and ready. That is why I challenge my audiences. How is everybody awake and ready? They reply. God won't re- reveal himself to spiritual sleepyheads. So, it, you know, there you... But Master helped them all. And Swamiji again talked about how many monks came in and came out. He gave them what little he could, and then they would go back to sleep. You see that so much in, well, 5,000 people would come to his lectures and five would come to his class series. They all were there, but he would wake them up for the time they were in the room, and then as soon as he turned his back, they would all go to sleep again. But at least they woke up for a few minutes. And it's uh, in the path... At the very end of it, Swami has, uh, he's, when he's talking about spiritual families, he, he says something, and I'm not phrasing it exactly because it's very, it's very succinct, but he talks about how over the course of time the soul um, gradually develops the magnetism to attract um, spiritual teaching. He's talking about how the family of souls builds around a great master. He said that, that the soul has the power to attract um, spiritual teaching and then gradually to hold on to what it attracts and he, he just it's a shorter phrase with him but when I read it I realized well that really is two different things isn't it because you can attract these experiences to yourself but to be able to actually um, change your life and not have your and not have your old habits is what we're talking about in the uh, Bhagavad Gita series you know, not have drona, the power of habit. Just, I wake up for a while, but then I go back to sleep. But gradually, that becomes the second step of the spiritual path. Is not merely that I've got the good karma to hear it, but I'm going to hold on to it, and I'm going to start running my life this way. I mean, how many people have read Autobiography of a Yogi compared to how many have actually followed through on the inspiration that they felt? It's, it's very, I mean, any group of spiritual seekers how many people have read autobiography? It's almost always 75, 100% of the room virtually has read it. And many of them even had profound experiences. But then 
it just it fades away just somehow they they can't hold it and so we have to work on all of those aspects and a certain amount of stubbornness is what gives you the power when you become stubborn in this direction and that's the that's the power of the first chakra is that we become steadfast and loyal to divine truth and not merely to what i am accustomed to thinking and and again that's why even when one resists as we were talking about god smashing people's lives we don't want to i've watched it in myself for so many years i don't want it to be true and then i have to ask myself why don't you want it to be true and what are the chances that it isn't <laughs> but i just don't want it to be true because if it is true just like that woman who was talking to me if swami's not wrong then i'm going to have to listen to him in other areas and i don't want to so i'm working so hard to make him wrong here that's the kind of pigheadedness i don't want it to be true i just box those things up and put them on a shelf i and going back to my other friend who who tried to live things that didn't fit him i just put them on the shelf until they fit me you know how it is you get you, even you get gifts and things you think you don't like and then a year or two later you look and you think but that's lovely why didn't i want that okay 228 it is bad karma of course it is bad karma of course that takes people back to the world god gives everybody a chance however just snap the karmic bonds you can do it everybody can the problem is so few make the effort oh my my will you try to say then well i'll at least try sir i will make the effort to snap the karmic bonds you feel it you feel that the power of maya the power of unfinished desire i mean the only way you can work with it the way the only way i can i found to work with it yes you can continually try to strengthen um this you know try to struggle against subconscious things but i i just always i just try to stay current <laughs> and i try to stay awake it's just like what is really happening for me now who am i sincerely what desires am i fostering what am i following and even when i've gone off on long tangents that might not have been the right tangent you just try to stay awake even while you're doing it it just like it seemed like a good idea at the time or even still it was an irresistible idea to me at the time i mean that's there's a lot of times in my life it's just like there may be a better way than this but i'm not sure that i'm capable of it i mean whether that's you know how long i meditate in the evening or whether i go to the movies or go off on some much longer karmic jaunt um may or may not be the best idea but it's the only thing i can do right now someone said to, uh, something once and i said well did you really pray and sort of see what's right and the answer was a very honest one it wouldn't make any difference i don't have a choice and i that's you know that there's an integrity in that it was honest it wasn't a pretense it wasn't trying to say that god was guiding it was that i don't have the power to even ask the question because i'm not going to be able to do anything except what i'm doing and and you see, there's a lot of integrity in that even if it uh, could be better that that in itself is a certain effort because it's a it's a humility that helps Yeah, you bet. That's a way he can do 
that. You can't go any better by definition. And, uh, yeah. That's a wonderful achievement, regardless of uh, how else you look at it. But sometimes it's very depressing to realize this is the best I can do, and that's where the, that's where the, uh, uh, that's where the pain comes in. Either because you know you're setting yourself up for suffering, or because you wish after all this time you were better. I mean, I saw. I saw Swamiji quite profoundly affected by that that thought. So it is not so easy to shake. You know, self-doubt was a real issue for him. And uh, as progressed and as advanced as he was, it was still still a form of maya that could capture him. So, you know, have I... And look, Ram Gopal Muzumdar meditated 20 hours a day and wondered if he'd found favor in the divine sight. See, those are the kinds of things that you you don't want to miss those points because when those same feelings come to you at whatever scale they come to you you have to realize this is how it progresses that I, this is something that I have to face and I have to overcome with more than affirmation and, and, and it's bewildering to me Swamiji's uh, intermittent uh, uh, what uh, what would be the word uh, mood would be the word I would think of just concern you know has he really done it why does why do his guru bhai still oppose him you know why are, why is this struggle why didn't that work out you know has he really done what master asked him to do just those very real questions and they were not he was not able to dismiss him with his own philosophy I mean <laughs> once it became humorous it was so extreme he was in a, a mood like that. He was, we were in Assisi. It was when everyone else in Assisi went to India. And I went over and I cooked and was his secretary so that his cook and secretary could go. And so there was almost no one around. And he went into, it, he's, he was serious. But he also, he lightened up. But he, he, he seriously expressed a long, despairing, um, perspective on his own life and the possibilities of it ever ending well. And I listened, and he 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 began to lighten because it was just saying it out loud. He, it began to sound, and so I was sitting there, conscious of the fact that I had to go fix lunch. He's he was very regular, and lunch needed to be ready. I mean, one tried to have lunch ready at a certain, but I was conscious of the fact there was no one else, and I had to go cook. But he was talking to me. And so when he finally seemed to have finished, I said, well, you know, if you, if you want to have lunch, I'm, I may have to go and make lunch. I said, but I'm concerned that if I leave you alone, and then he sort of finished the sentence, you're afraid I'll commit suicide. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, that is my concern. <laughs> and I said, and the only thing I can think to offer you is euthanasia. <laughs> At which point we were both laughing. And, you know, he said, well, what you can do is go make me a very good lunch. And I said, okay, sir, I'll do my best. But nonetheless, I mean, by then we were laughing, but we, he wasn't laughing when he started. And, you, and so I, at first I would just want to reject that he was saying those things to me or saying those things not only to me. But after a while I had to think, 
I have to really hear this. You know, this is not, it's not so simple. It's because, well, because until you're free, you're not free. And, you know, the degree to which such a thing could hold you, but many, 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 many great saints go through the dark night of the soul. And it's easy to dismiss when you're not having it. It's easy from the outside to objectively, objectively refute it. But apparently it's not so easy from inside. And therefore, we have to understand for ourselves, too, that there's just this is very subtle. That's why I said I don't, I don't try to control. I don't know what the right words are. But I, don't, I, don't, I just let things happen a lot more than I used to. Because I used to try to always mold reality to my ideas. Now I try to see what reality is and, you know, understand the truth behind it. And it's, all, it's very subtle. All this is a razor's edge because you can't just sail off without any discipline either. Anyway, fascinating. All right. That's enough? Okay. So I made him, I think I made him some special Indian thing he wanted that day. So we went through from uh, 225 through 228. Can I borrow a pen or a pencil from someone?